Dennis Rader was born in a quiet corner of Kansas, close to where Kansas, Oklahoma and Missouri all meet on March 9, 1945. He was baptized at Zion Lutheran Church in Pittsburgh, Kansas. His father was a member of the U.S. Marine Corps, who later worked for the Electric Utility Company starting in 1948. The family moved to Wichita, in Kansas when Dennis was a young boy. The Raiders settled into a modest, but pleasant home at 4815 in Seneca, which remained continually as a Raider household until sold in 2005. Not much is known about Raider's childhood. He is said to have joined the Boy Scouts as a youth. He attended Riverview Elementary School. By his own admission, he says he developed fantasies about bondage, control and torture from an early age while still in grade school. As he became pubic, he dreamed of tying girls up and having his way with them. He also admits to having killed cats and dogs such as by hanging them as a youth. Those who knew him personally describe a quiet and polite young man who preferred to keep to himself. Dennis Rader was not a joiner or known to be very socially active in high school. The young Dennis showed no interest in the music of the times. One friend described him as utterly lacking a sense of humor, but tending to be studious and focused. He was described as a person who chose his words before speaking and who would give you his full attention as he spoke. In 1966, Raider joined the U.S. Air Force at the age of 21. Raider was first sent to Lackland Base in San Antonio, Texas for basic training. He spent time at Shepherd Base while doing further technical training there. Raider's years on active duty appear to have been unremarkable. He attained the rank of sergeant and worked in the installation of antenna equipment, among other tasks. Less than a year after his return to Wichita, on May 22, 1971, Dennis Raider and Paula Dietz were married. Paula was also from the same area and had attended the same high school. She was also a fellow Lutheran. Dennis was 26. Paula was 23 when they got married. They settled in Park City, not far from the Raider home in North Wichita. Dennis was working in the meat department of an IGA supermarket. Paula was a bookkeeper. In late 1973, he appears to have had a brief stint working for Cessna, the aircraft manufacturer, but says he was fired from that job. He found himself in a low frame of mind, unemployed, unhappy, with time on his hands. He slipped deeper into the fantasy world he had known since childhood. He wanted to know, what would it feel like to strangle somebody to death? B stands for bind, T stands for torture, and K stands for kill. Bind, torture, kill. For over 30 years, 10 bodies, three initials which struck terror in the heartlands of America. B stands for bind, T stands for torture, and K stands for kill. Bind, torture, kill. 
A serial killer so deadly, even the police feared where he would strike next. I was terrified that this guy was maybe going to come after my family. We go inside police files, piece together the forensic evidence, and reveal the true story of the hunt for one of the world's most wanted. Wichita, Kansas, built on the prairie flats of the Midwest. Honest, God-fearing, middle America. The biggest city in the state they call the buckle on the Bible belt. A community where people felt safe leaving their doors unlocked until a serial killer began to prowl the streets. For over 30 years, two generations of detectives hunted Wichita's serial killer. Lieutenant Landwehr headed the BTK task force. We knew sooner or later he will kill again if we fail in our attempt. BTK first struck in 1974. What detectives found at the scene haunted former Chief of Police Richard Lemunyan for decades. This is the house where it all started. This is where BTK made his first hit over 30 years ago. Most of our homicides were the domestic type, the smoking gun, bar fights, things of that nature. But this particular one was highly unusual, took all of us by, uh, by surprise. The wood frame house was home to the Otero family, who had only just moved into the area. Joseph was an Air Force veteran, and his wife, Julie, worked in the local factory. It was very shocking for the officers when they came up. They found uh, the parents face down in their own bedroom, fully clothed, obviously strangled, uh, bags over their head. The strangled corpse of nine-year-old Joe Jr. was in another bedroom. But police were still to make another horrific discovery. His 11-year-old sister, Josephine. Josephine had been put through a different type of death than the others. He took her downstairs and uh, she was obviously alive. He had put a rope around her neck and over some pipes and he would raise her up and as she was dying and he was masturbating at that time so she was the target the primary target i believe for this the other three otero children had only escaped because they were at school when the killer attacked the killer had made certain there was no call for help disabling the phone line before entering the house that's what led the investigators to thinking that this couldn't be a random thing. People just don't walk in off the street and murder a family. You couldn't get your mind around that. 
That didn't happen in Wichita, Kansas. But Wichita was different now. BTK had arrived. January 1974. The Wichita Police Department was searching for the brutal murderer of the Otero family. The victims, a mother, father, and two of their children. All four had been asphyxiated and strangled. Why would someone do this to a family? No one would do this just to go in and do it. There had to be a reason for it. Police thought there could be a sexual motive due to evidence left at the scene. They were focusing on seminal fluid that was deposited near the body of Josephine Otero. They were primarily interested in determining the blood group, if possible. Blood typing suggested the killer was blood type O, but that's the commonest type. 40% of people are type O. Before the use of DNA, the test could only narrow down the suspect list so far. For nine months, police followed up every lead they had. Witnesses provided descriptions and identikits were drawn up. Then, in October 1974, three men confessed to murdering the Oteros. But one person knew they were lying. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. Only the letter's author knew the horrific details. Josephine, hanging by the neck in the northwest part of the basement. Hands tied with bind cord, feet with clothesline cord. Her glasses in the southwest bedroom. Only the killer would know none of this had been released uh, publicly. FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood has analyzed BTK's behavior. It is unusual for a serial killer to correspond uh, following the commission of a crime. BTK certainly uh, suffered from malignant narcissism. And that's when you begin to consider yourself superior to others, that you're incapable of making mistakes, and you have a desperate need for attention. He had typed this letter, took it to the city library, and then he called one of the local newspaper reporters. BTK craved attention and used his letter to taunt the police. He dared them to catch him before he struck again. When this monster enters my brain, I will never know. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim. The code words for me will be, bind them, torture them, kill them, B-T-K. They will be on the next victim. He's a psychopath, and a psychopath is a very manipulative individual. He's an individual who manages to compartmentalize. In other words, he can separate out uh, what's taking place from his involvement. 
Then nothing for three years. But BTK was preparing to strike again. His next victim lived here on Hydraulic Street. She was a uh, mother, alone with her children, and she was ill that day. 24-year-old Shirley Vianne was at home with her three children that day. He had what he called a hit kit. He brought his own materials. Rope and duct tape to bind the victim and a gun to force them into submission. At 11.45 a.m., he was ready to strike. He locked the children in the bathroom. He murdered her by strangling her, slowly. Sexual sadism feeds off of the response to the infliction of physical or emotional pain. It's extremely important for BTK to elicit that, that response of terror and fear. Then something happened. He didn't get the phone wire cut. So the phone rang, but it became a panic situation for him. So he left. The investigators came to me and said, there's a possibility this is tied to the Otero murders. Something else puzzled the chief. Shirley Vian's son saw the murderer at the door of a neighbor's home earlier in the same day. We never did think that she was the primary target, which turns out she wasn't. Very few people experience in a lifetime being able to say, I was the target of a serial killer, because most people that are targets of serial killers don't live to talk about it. Cheryl Sarkozy and Judy Skirl were roommates back in the late 70s, living just a few doors down from Shirley Vianne. But on the day of the murder, the women were out. I came home and the police said that a man had murdered the woman down the street from me, but previous to him murdering her, he had come to my house and knocked on my door. So the police believed that I was the intended victim that day. Cheryl had had a lucky escape, but the roommates think BTK came back the following year. And I can remember turning on the kitchen light as I'm entering the room, and I looked up and I saw a man peeking in the back window. And he turned and walked away. And by then we had the phone and we had dove underneath the kitchen table for safety and tried to call the police and waited underneath the kitchen table until the sun came up. BTK targeted neighborhoods where he thought he might find women at home alone. He would troll the area, he would find somebody that looked right to him, and that's how he would target his victims. 25-year-old Nancy Fox lived alone, getting home late from working two jobs. Part of his 
protection against making mistakes was getting to know his victims, gathering intelligence, where they live, uh, what kind of car they drive, what time they come home. On the 8th of December, 1977, Nancy Fox returned home from her job at a jewellery store. Hi, Nancy. Manual and ligature strangulation hanging. These are very slow and agonizing ways to die. Sure. He did take the victims to the brink of death, let them know that they were at the point of death, and that he allowed them to come back. Tied a little bit tighter. That method of allowing the victim to revive goes to his playing the role of God. He has within his power life and death over another human being. Eight eighteen the following morning. Police hear the killer's voice for the first time. Dispatcher. You will find a homicide at eight forty-three South Nancy Goes to his narcissism, that need for attention. Here I am, I'm calling you to let you know that I did it, and you still can't catch me. Police rushed to the call box, but when they got there, the killer was gone. It's part of his power, it's part of his game that he's playing with the police. Two months later, BTK made his next move. A package arrived at this Wichita TV station. It was a package that contained not only a letter, but a poem. And I have a portion of the poem here. It was titled, Oh, Death to Nancy. What is this that I see? Cold, icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened up its gate to trick me. And then it's signed, BTK. He said, quote, how about some names for me? Well, I like the following. Some names like the, the BTK, BTK Strangler, Strangler the Psycho. Psycho. And then he continues, he says, the Wichita Executioner, the Asphyxiator. The killer claimed to have committed seven murders. The Otero family, Shirley Vianne, Nancy Fox, and one unnamed victim. How many do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? I think it's this line that absolutely stopped everyone in their tracks. BTK's threat to kill again gave police a horrible dilemma. Give the killer the recognition he craved or risk provoking him into another kill. There was a lot of debate in terms of what we should do. Should we give him credit? Should we not give him credit? There's certainly a danger of uh, recognizing the presence of a serial killer within the community and, and particularly giving him a name because now what you've done is you've validated what he's doing. Uh, it may, in fact, encourage him to commit more murders. But with us right now is Chief of Police Richard Lemonian. But police decided they had to warn the public. A serial killer was stalking Wichita. Do you see any pattern to BTK's conduct? We have an individual who apparently has the uncontrollable desire to kill at times. Ultimately, I was the one who had to make the decision. Yes, you're smarter than we are. Yes, uh, we recognize who you are. And yes, this is your name. 
We were convinced that unless we were able to get him communicating, we would have another murder. What kind of leads do you have? Well, very honestly, we have no solid leads at all. Using TV, the chief tried to snare BTK with a strange experiment, subliminal imaging. The subliminal image was one or two frames that was spliced into videotape, and in it, it contained a couple of words and what the psychological impact of that we hoped was that that image would be burned into BTK's brain. It sounds rather silly now, but uh, 30 years ago, they, there was some credence to that. That's the Here's what went out on air. Bright murder that occurred. Here it is, slowed 50 times. In the Nancy Fox sketch that he sent us was a pair of glasses that was lying upside down. And so what the uh, behavioral science people came up with was a picture uh, with a pair of glasses upside down and it simply said, call the chief, knowing that he was watching this. That person is going to kill again. It didn't work. He never did communicate with me. Robert Beatty, a local attorney following the BTK story, felt panic grip the entire city. Women would call the police to come and check their residence. Night after night, they would go in the house with their guns drawn and flashlight out, searching through the house. People were scared to death that this maniac was going to get them, particularly young women. I put triple locks on all my exterior doors. I put interior locks on our bedroom doors. And even still, I just laid awake all night waiting for this man to come back. We came to the conclusion that this was someone that lived in this community, that, that was someone's neighbor. We think he's one of us, and that's why we can't find him. He's right out here among us. How could detectives uncover the killer in their community? New forensic tests were used to examine clothing from the Nancy Fox crime scene. The robe that was submitted from the Nancy Fox scene was processed once we've identified stains that are possibly semen, we can use a microscope to look for sperm cells. Scientists could now classify people into two categories, secretors or non-secretors. If you're examining a seminal fluid stain and you're unable to identify a blood group, one conclusion that you could draw is that person is a non-secretor. BTK's blood type was not detectable in his semen. This made him a non-secretor. This new information made the previous blood typing inconclusive. To narrow down the suspects, the lab carried out a further test on proteins present in the semen, called PGM. The perpetrator was a non-secretor. That narrows it down to approximately 20% of the population. And if on the other hand, you also know that they are a PGM type 1, and that is expressed by 50% of the population, you can combine these two points of information and further narrow it down to about 10% of the population. 
But even with this information, BTK could still be one of more than 15,000 men in Wichita alone. What made it even harder for police was that BTK left long gaps between murders. It had been three years since his last killings. Every time he makes a mistake, you'll see a period where he will not take any action at all. After he makes his phone call in the Fox case, his voice is recorded. He's afraid, again, that someone will be able to identify him. Following the murder of Nancy Fox, BTK seemed to go underground again. We know that he was out there selecting victims in preparation for future attacks. As detectives struggled to picture the phantom stalking their city, BTK was free to kill again. In the 1970s, a killer had brutally murdered seven people in the city of Wichita, Kansas. He was known as BTK. Bind, torture, kill. Police searched for a pattern in BTK's killings, or links between the victims. They fell within a small radius, but nothing else appeared to link them. It'd be impossible to gauge who his next victim would be. He's totally random, and that would be very difficult for any investigator to try to link those together because it just depends on what he feels like that day. Police looked again at the evidence in the hope of finding a connection with the killer. The letters sent by BTK were always photocopied to help disguise the typewriter he had used. But unknown to BTK, early photocopiers used distinctive paper rolls and toner Detectives traced the paper from BTK's communications to a machine in this building on the campus of the State University. Police hoped this might pinpoint BTK, but he was not the only one using this machine. The problem is it, had, it was public access. Anybody could put a nickel in and anybody could make a copy there. The photocopier could not reveal BTK's identity. The best evidence we had was the voice tape. Uh, we played it over and over again. I'm sorry, sir, I can't understand you. What is the address? 43 The voice on the recording that came into the dispatcher appeared to be a white male. So we're looking at white males, probably in their age of their 40s. That's correct. But then in the 1980s, BTK disappeared again. There were no more letters, and the murders seemed to stop. Had he given up, or was he stalking his next victim? We were told all along, serial killers can't stop. You know, we didn't believe that. We believe he did stop. We believe he was here. Police set up a special task force to keep up the hunt for BTK. They had looked at every eccentric, everybody with a sexual offender record, everybody basically with a criminal record. They had looked at them and excluded them. Then in 1985, after six years of silence, another body was discovered. 53-year-old Maureen Hedge was found in a ditch on the outskirts of Wichita. She had been strangled. But police could not be sure if this was BTK. He had never moved a victim from their home before. 
he knows that that's going to delay the investigation, that it's going to be worked as a missing person, uh, that she drove away. Uh, he didn't want to arouse any suspicions. The murder didn't fit with the killer's normal pattern. It was a discernible ritual, not a discernible M.O. Let's define M.O. M.O. are those acts necessary to the commission of the crime. The thing that makes BTK discernible is his ritual. The killer took the body of Mrs. Hedge into an empty church that night to take a series of sexually explicit photographs. But he took her there uh, as uh, a challenge, if you will. He went to God's home, God's house on earth, and desecrated it as part of his belief of how powerful he is. Despite the bold risks the killer took, the murder of Maureen Hedge remained unsolved. So they can take these greater risks with the confidence that they are so superior, they're not going to be caught. BTK meticulously planned his attacks. He could wait years to find the right victim. In between attacks, jewelry stolen from previous victims became the focus of BTK's attention. I think he had his trophies. He could relive the crime. There are ways for a person to satisfy himself, uh, and that's masturbatory fantasies. So we know he used his trophies. Six years after the murder of Marine Hedge, another body was found. 62-year-old Dolores Davis was enjoying her retirement in a house on the outskirts of town. As Mrs. Davis slept, someone hurled a concrete block through the glass door of her home. Sound like a bomb, probably. And I think she jumped out of bed and, um, you know, you're trying to get your bearings, figure out what went on, and here's this animal standing there, and then he went ahead and strangled her with her pantyhose. Police discovered the body under this bridge, 10 miles north of Wichita, but they didn't know just how close the killer was. BTK had set up a complex alibi to ensure he would not become a suspect. It was about a mile and a half away from his house. It set up that he was on a scouting trip because it was close to his house, so he thought it was too close to home that he thought that he might become a suspect. He left no evidence, there were no witnesses. If you have a 10 as the maximum, uh, best organized, then I would say, with one being the least organized, then I would say BTK's an eight on a scale of one to 10. Over 30 years after BTK had first struck, 10 unsolved murders still haunted the city. In his letter of 1978, the killer had claimed seven attacks. But BTK had remained silent on three more unsolved murders. All leads had come to a dead end. But in 2004, advances in DNA technology provided a breakthrough that would prove crucial. The semen samples from murders BTK carried out in the 1970s were reanalyzed. 
Police now had a DNA profile of the killer. We had the DNA profile of BTK. However, until we had a profile from a known individual that we can compare that to, uh, we couldn't identify that individual. Uh, the only thing that we could exclude is that when we ran the profile through the DNA database, this person was not a convicted offender that had his profile in the database. Then, on the 30th anniversary of BTK's first attack, came news of an upcoming book saying that BTK was history. I thought, this guy is probably dead. It started as an academic educational exercise. But there was a point when I realized that this might actually flesh out the killer. If he is still out there, we may hear from him. That yeah, was a challenge to BTK. I'm still here. You know, I'm still omnipresent, if you will. I'm everywhere. March 19th, 2004. A letter arrived here claiming credit for a brutal, unsolved murder in 1986. The victim, 28-year-old Vicky Wegerly. The signature was all too familiar. There was no doubt that it was a genuine communication. We were going to work the case that it was BTK and that we were going to catch him this time. The strategy was to keep him talking because the problem we'd had before was that we'd get a letter from him and then we would not hear from him for another three or four years. So we wanted the frequency of the communications to increase. Police could not risk BTK going underground again. And it was critical that we set up a bond between Lieutenant Landwehr and this killer. At this point, the FBI told us that it was very possible that the killer could become obsessed with that person and possibly target them or their family. Now, this was the worst time of my life. I was, you know, I was terrified that this guy was maybe going to come after my family or somebody or kill someone else in this community, and it was going to be on my watch. We were very, very careful to never say anything that might challenge him anything that he might perceive as uh, belittling. Uh, we did not want to set this man off. We did not want to upset him in any way. This is one of the most challenging cases that I've ever been involved with. Uh, and I find that the individual that is doing this would be very interesting to talk to. I'm not talking to the press. I'm not talking to the public. I'm talking to BTK. And I want BTK to understand that he finally got the notoriety that he had always craved. The residents of Wichita felt the fear of over 30 years ago grip the city again. The hunt was on for BTK. BTK responded to Lieutenant Landwehr's appeals in a series of notes and packages, often inside cereal boxes, marked BTK. He sent a bound and hung doll a chilling reference to young Josephine Otero. But even more sinister, BTK revealed his plans to kill again. I've spotted a female that I think lives alone. Just got to work out the details. I'm much older now, and I have to condition myself carefully. Got to do it this year or next. Time is running out for me. He makes a threat, 
that he has found someone. And we made sure that the public knew. This is serious. Don't trust anybody. I can see the fear in their eyes. And when the most important people in an investigation are that scared, it's a scary feeling for everyone. For 10 months, police play a game of cat and mouse with BTK until the killer's urge to communicate leads to a critical mistake. He leaves a package in an open flatbed truck outside a Wichita hardware store in a parking lot covered by security cameras. Detectives prepared to analyze more than 2,000 hours of footage in a race against time. A vehicle comes into the lot, it, it does kind of a loop, and it uh, pulls next to the truck. He pulls something out from his vehicle and places it behind the cab of the truck, and then gets back in his vehicle and pulls away. The pictures wouldn't identify BTK, but could they pinpoint his vehicle? Forensic experts analyzed the image by measuring the size, volume, and ground clearance, as well as the paintwork shade of the vehicle, detectives made a crucial discovery. BTK drove a black Jeep Cherokee. In the message left at the hardware store, the killer asks if a computer floppy disk can be traced back to the computer which authored it. If police promised it couldn't, he'd send future messages that way. He felt himself in such a powerful position, and the police were so dependent upon him for information that they couldn't possibly lie to him. But police weren't playing by BTK's rules. They set a trap using a newspaper advert. He wants us to answer in code. He says, Rex, it will be okay. The chances of him falling for that, you know, we didn't think. We didn't think that, that was a possibility. I don't think anyone could ever believe that we were that lucky. BTK had made a fatal error. The disc he sent was rushed to the forensics team. Could such a simple trap have finally snared BTK? Microsoft embeds in many of its documents something called metadata. And that metadata is information about the file. You can access that by going to File Properties, as you can see here, the software that was registered to Christ Lutheran Church. This church is just north of Wichita. But how could it possibly be linked to a serial killer? In addition to that, we can see that the document was last saved by a person named Dennis. After 31 years, a name. What happened next was so quick, so simple. It's hard to believe. We came up with a website for Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita. And on that home page, there's a link to people who are related to the church. So when we click on that link, it brings up the page that has president of the congregation was Dennis Rader. Detectives rushed to Dennis Rader's house. They still had to check out one vital detail. As we came uh, down the street here, uh, we saw that there was a black Jeep Cherokee in the driveway. And it was just a huge rush of energy because the thing about the Cherokee was it was the one piece of evidence that he didn't know we had. Even with the Jeep, 
The evidence was circumstantial. Lieutenant Landwehr ordered detectives to hold off. As lieutenant, I bring them all back. I say, no, I wanted to be sure, and I wanted to get some DNA. Police needed to link Dennis Rader's DNA with that of the killer. By secretly accessing medical records, they obtained the DNA profile of Rader's daughter. They wanted to establish if BTK was in fact the father of this individual. It's fair to say that you could exclude over 99% of the population with these paternity tests. DNA from the crime scenes and Rader's daughter proved BTK and Dennis Rader were the same man. Armed with this data, police were poised to strike. Shortly after 12 noon on February 25th, 2005, Dennis Rader headed home for lunch. It was kind of fun, to be honest with you. Every police officer since 1974 has wished for the day that I got right there. It was a great, great feeling of relief. Great feeling. I mean, I can't remember a better feeling in my life. The bottom line, BTK is arrested. The pall of fear hanging over Wichita had lifted. BTK was captured. But just how much would he reveal? At BTK's trial, chilling details of 30 years of killing would shock the nation. The serial killer who stalked Wichita, Kansas for over 30 years had been unmasked as Dennis Rader. But what would he reveal to the police? Dennis Rader, you're under arrest. I know. So basically, uh, This is the actual footage of Rader's 30-hour interrogation. At first, he stonewalled. Then three hours in, Lieutenant Landwehr played his ace, the DNA. I know that BTK is the father of your children. Your children. I know that. No doubt. It's done deal. The tests were done. Say, say, say who you are. Why don't you just say it? You're BTK. The strategy of winning Raiders' trust had been a spectacular success. He honestly believes that, you know, he's the fox and we're the hounds. I mean, I'm serious. He thinks that we're going to come after him. And that's part of the chase, and he's going to escape, and then we're going to come after him again. And uh, now that we've caught him, we're all good buddies. On 27th of June, 2005, Dennis Rader began the most chilling courtroom confession ever heard, as he coldly revealed secrets he'd kept for over 30 years. All right, Mr. Rader, I need to find out more information. On that particular day, the 15th day of January, 1974, can you tell me where you went to kill Mr. Joseph Otero? Mm, I think it's 1834, uh, Edgemore. All right, 
Can you tell me approximately what time of day you went there? Well, somewhere between 7 and 7.30. This particular location, did you know these people? No, that's... Uh, No, that was part of my, uh, I guess my what you call fantasy. These people were uh, selected. All right. So you, okay. okay, you were engaged in some kind of fantasy during this period of time. Uh, yes, sir. All right. Now, when you use the term fantasy, is this something you were doing for your personal pleasure? Uh, sexual fantasy, sir. I see. So you went to this residence, and what occurred then? Well, <clears throat> um, I had uh, did some uh, thinking on what I was going to do to uh, either Mrs. Otero or Josephine and uh, basically broke into the house or didn't break into the house. But uh, when they came out of the house, I came in and confronted the family and then we went from there. All right. Had you planned this beforehand? To some degree, yes. Uh, after I got in the house, it well, I lost control of it, but it, it was, you know, in the back of my mind, I had some ideas what I was going to do, did but uh, I just, I basically panicked that first day, so. Beforehand, did you know who was there in the house? I thought Mrs. Otero and the two kids, the uh, two younger kids were in the house. I didn't realize Mr. Otero was going to be there. All right. How did you get into the house? I came through the back door, uh, cut the phone lines, uh, waited at the back door had reservations about even going or just walking away, but pretty soon the door opened and I was in. All right, so the door opened, was it open for you or did something? I think one of the kids, I think the uh, ju uh, junior, or not junior, yes, the, uh, the young girl, uh, Joseph, opened the door. He probably let the dog out because the dog was in the house at that time. All right, when you went into the house, what happened then? Well, I confronted the family. Uh, pulled a pistol, uh, confronted Mr. Otero, and asked him to, uh, you know, that I was there to, basically, I was uh, wanted, uh, wanted to uh, get the car, I was hungry, food, I was wanted, and asked him to lie down in the uh, living room, and uh, at that time I realized that wouldn't be a really good idea, so I finally, the dog was a real problem, so I uh, asked Mr. Otero if he could get the dog out, so he had one of the kids put it out. Took him back to the bedroom. You took who back to the bedroom? Uh, the family, to the bedroom. They have four members. All right, what happened then? At that time, I tied him up. While still holding him at gunpoint? Well, in between tying and yes. Yeah. All right, after you tied them up, what occurred? Well, uh, they started complaining about uh, being tied up, and I re-loosened re the bonds a couple of times. Uh, tried to make Mr. Otero as comfortable as I could. Uh, currently had a cracked rib from a car accident, so I had him put a pillow down on for his head. Uh, had he put a, uh, I think he's a Parker or a coat underneath him. Uh, they, uh, you know, they talked to me about, uh, uh, you know, giving the car and whatever money. I guess they didn't have very much money, and uh, the, uh, there I realized that, uh, you know, I was already. I didn't have a mask on or anything. They already could ID me and uh, uh, made, a, made a decision to go ahead and, and uh, put them down, I guess, or strangle them.
All right. What did you do to Joseph Otero Sr.? Joseph Otero? Yeah, okay. Joseph Otero Sr., Mr. Otero, the father. I uh, put a plastic bag over his head and then some cords and tightened it. And this was in the bedroom? Yes, sir. Did he, in fact, uh, suffocate and die as a result of this? Not right away. No, sir, he didn't. What happened? Uh, well, after that, I, uh, I did miss this Otero. Uh, I had never strangled anyone before, so I really didn't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. But Was she also tied up there in the yes, bedroom? Yes, uh -huh. yeah, both her hands and their feet were tied up. She was on the bed. Where were the children? Uh, well, uh, Josephine was on the bed, and uh, Junior was on the floor at this time. So we're, we're talking, first of all, about Joseph Otero. So you put the bag over his head and tied it, mm -hmm. and he did not die right away. Can you tell me what happened in regards to Joseph uh, He moved over real quick-like, and I think tore a hole in the bag, and I could tell that he was having some problems there. But at that time, the, the whole family just went, uh, they went panicked on me, so I, I worked pretty quick. What did you, you worked pretty quick. Well, what I mean, I, I, I strangled <coughs> Mrs. Otero, and she went out, or passed out. I thought she was dead. She passed out. And I strangled uh, uh, Josephine. She passed out, or I thought she was dead. And uh, then I went over and uh, put a, uh, and then, uh, put a bag on uh, uh, Junior's head. And, uh, and then, uh, if I remember right, uh, Mrs. Otero came back. Uh, she came back and. Uh, Sir, let me ask you about Joseph Otero Sr. You senior. indicated he had torn a hole in the bag. Mm -hmm. and what did you do with him then? I put another bag over it, or either that or a. If I recollect, I think I put a, uh, either a cloth or a t shirt or something over it, over his head, and then a bag, another bag. And did, then he it down. did he subsequently die? Well, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I was. I didn't just stay there and watch him. I mean, I was moving around the room. But all right. So you indicated you strangled Mrs. Otero after you had done this. Is that correct? Now I went back and strangled her again, right. that, and that that finally killed her at that time. So this is in regards to count two. You had <laughs> first of all put the bag over Joseph Otero's head, mm -hmm. and he tore a hole in the bag. Mm -hmm. Then. You went ahead. Did you strangle Mrs. Otero then, okay. or did you go first back? Of all, first of all, Mr. Otero was strangled, or a bag put over his head and strangled. Then I thought he was going down, and I went over and strangled Mrs. Otero, and I thought she was down. Then I strangled uh, uh, Josephine, thought she was down, and then I went over to Junior and put the bag on his head. After that, Mrs. Otero woke back up, and uh, you know she was pretty upset. What's going on? So I came back, and uh, at that point in time, strangled her uh, for for the death strangle. At that time, with your hands or what? No, with a cord, with a with a rope. And uh, then I, uh, I think at that point in time, I redid Mr. Otero, put the bag over his head, uh, went over, and then took. Junior, oh, oh, before that, she asked me to uh, to, to uh, save her son, so I actually had taken the bag off, and then I was really upset at that point in time. So basically, when Mr. Terrell was down, Mrs. Otero was down, I went ahead and, and uh, took
took uh, J uh, Junior, I put another bag over his head and took him to the other bedroom at that what, time. What did you do then? Uh, put a bag over his head, I put a, a cloth over his head, a t-shirt and a bag so he couldn't tear a hole in it. And uh, he subsequently died from that. And then when I went back, uh, Josephine had woke back up. What did you do then? And I took her to the basement and eventually uh, hung her. Are you hung her in the basement? Yes, sir. Right. Did you do anything else at that time? Yes, I, uh, I had some sexual fantasies. But that was uh, after she was hung. All right. What did you do then? Went through the house, uh, kind of cleaned it up. Uh, it's called the right-hand rule. You go from room to room, uh, picked everything up. I think I took uh, Mr. Otero's watch. There, I guess I took a radio. I uh, I forgot about that, but apparently I took a radio. Why did I you got... take these things? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. Just uh... what happened then? I uh, got the keys to the car. In fact, I had the keys, I think, earlier before that because I wanted to make sure I had a, a way of getting out of the house and uh, clean the house up a little bit, make sure everything's packed up and left through the front door and, uh, and went there, went over to their car and then drove over to uh, Dylan's and left the car there and eventually walked back to my car. All right. Now, sir, from what you have just said, I take it that the facts you've told me apply to both counts one, all of counts one, two, three, and four. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Now, Mr. Rader. Yes. And that is originally, I believe, he indicated 1834 Edgemore. The address was actually 803 Edgemore. <laughs> all right, but I'd ask for the third and central county. He what had happened. I don't believe he. Exact address is important. All right, Mr. Rader, we will now turn to count five. In that count, it is claimed that on or about the fourth day of April 1974 in Sedgwick County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed Catherine Bright maliciously, willfully deliberately and with premeditation by strangulation and stabbing, inflicting injuries from which she did die on April 4th, 1974. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Well, uh, the, uh, I don't know how to exactly say that. I had many, what I called them projects. They were different people in the town that I followed, watched. Uh, Kathleen Bright was one of the next targets, I guess, as I would indicate. How did you select her? Uh, just driving by one day, and I saw her go in the house with somebody else, and I thought that's a possibility. There was many, many places in the area, um, College Hill, they're all over Wichita. But anyway, that's it. Just was basically a selection process. Work toward it. If it didn't work, I just move on to something else. But in the, in the, my kind of person, it's stalking and scrolling. You go through the trolling stage and then a stocking stage. She was in the stocking stage when this happened. Um, All right, sir. So you identified Catherine Bright as a potential victim. Yes, sir. What did you do here in Sedgwick County then? Pardon? What did you do then here in Sedgwick County? Well, on this particular day, yes. uh, I broke into the house and waited for her to come home. How did you break into the house? Uh, through the back door on the east side. 
All right, and you waited for her to come home. Where yes, did sir. you wait? Uh, in the house there, probably close to the bedroom. I walked through the house and uh, kind of figured out where I'd be if they came through. All right. What happened then? Uh, she and uh, Kevin uh, Bright came in. Uh, I wasn't expecting him to be there. Uh, and come find out, I guess, they were related. Uh, that time I uh, approached him and told him I was wanted in California. Uh, I needed some car. Basically the same thing that I told the Turles. Uh, kind of ease them, make them feel better. And proceeded to, I think I had him tie, I think I had him tie her up first. And then I tied him up or vice versa. I don't remember right now. Now let, let me ask, you indicated that you had some uh, items to tie these people with. Did you bring these items, both the Oteros and to this location? The Oteros I did, uh, I'm not really sure on the Brights. Um, there was some, I, when I was working with the police, there was some controversy on that. Probably more likely I did, but uh, if, if I had brought my stuff and used my stuff, Kevin would probably be dead today. Right. I'm not bragging on that. It's just a matter of fact. It's the bonds I uh, tied him up with that he broke himself. And that, uh, All right. And maybe same way with uh, same with Catherine. It was I got out of got out of hand. All right. Now you indicated that you believe you had Kevin tie Catherine up. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened then. Okay. I moved. Uh, well, after I really can't remember, Judge, whether I had her tie him up or she tied him up. But anyway, I moved, basically I moved her to another bedroom and he was already secure there by the bed. Uh, I tied his feet to the uh, bedpost, at the bottom of the bedpost so he couldn't run. Uh, kind of tied her in the other bedroom and then I came back to strangle him. And at that time we had a fight. Were you armed with a handgun at that time also? Yes, I had a handgun. What happened when you I came back? I actually had two handguns. Uh, well, I started strangling. The, either the parent uh, broke or he broke his bonds and he jumped up real quick like. I pulled my gun and quickly shot him. It hit him in the head. He fell over. Uh, I could see the blood and as far as I concerned, he, you know, I thought he was down and uh, was out and then went and uh, started to strangle uh, uh, Catherine. And uh, then we started fighting because the uh, bonds weren't very good and so Back and forth, we fought. Uh, you and Catherine? Yeah, we fought. Uh, and I got the best of her, and I thought she was going down, and then I could hear some movement in the other room. So I went back, and Kevin, uh, no, no. I thought she was going down, and I went back to the other bedroom where Kevin was at, and I tried to restrangle him at that time. And he jumped up, and we fought, and, uh, and he about, at that time, about shot me because he got the other pistol that was in my shoulder here. I had my magnum in my shoulder. So, and originally I... Holster. Hmm? Did you have it in a shoulder holster? Yes, and I had the magnum in my shoulder holster. The other one was a 22. Right. And we fought at that point in time, and uh, I thought it was going to go off. I jammed the gun, stuck my finger in, the, in there, jammed it. And uh, I think he thought that was the only gun I had, because once I either bit his finger or hit him or something got away, and I used the 22 and shot him one more time. And I thought he was down for good at that time. All right, so you shot him a second time. Yes, sir. What happened then? Uh, went back to uh, uh, finish the job on Catherine. And uh, she was fighting. Uh, and at, at that point in time, I'd been fighting her. And I just, and then I heard some, I don't know whether I uh, 
was basically losing control. The uh, strangulation wasn't working on her, and I uh, used a knife on her. You say you used a knife on yes. her. Yes. What did you do with the knife? I stabbed her. Uh, she said either stabbed two or three times, uh, either here or here. Maybe two back here and one here, or maybe just two times back and here. You were pointing to your lower back and your... your yeah, underneath the ribs. And your lower abdomen. Yeah, underneath the ribs, up, up underneath the ribs. So after you stabbed her, what happened? Uh, actually, I think at that point in time, well, it was a total mess because I didn't have control on it. Uh, she was bleeding. Uh, she went down. Uh, I think I just went back to check on Kevin, or at that basically same time, I heard him escape. It could be one of the two. But all of a sudden, the front door of the house was open, and he was gone. And uh, or, Oh, I'll tell you what I thought. I thought the police were coming at that time. I heard the door open. I thought, no, that's it. And I stepped out there, and he, I could see him running down the street, so I quickly cleaned up everything that I could and left. All right, now, Mr. Rader, you indicated that at the Oteros you did not have a mask on. Did you have a mask on at the Brights? No, no, I didn't. Uh -uh. All right, so what happened then? Uh, I tried, to, I had already had the keys to the cars, uh, and I thought I had the right key to the right car. I ran out to their car, I think it was a pickup out there. Tried it, didn't work, and uh, at that point in time, I was—he was gone, running down the street. I thought, "Yeah, I'm in trouble." So I tried it, didn't work. So I just took off, ran, and went down, went east, and then worked back toward the WSU campus where my car was parked. All right. So you had parked your car at the Wichita State University yes, sir, campus. On the campus uh -huh. How far away were uh, was the Bright's residence? Oh, I parked. Uh, was that 13th? And they're, uh, let's see, they're, they were on 13th, was it 17th? Yeah. Uh, I, was for, I was just about one block south of 17th where the car was. Uh, oh. there, there's a park there. I parked by that park. And then I walked to 13th or to the Brights residence. So I basically ran back. All right. So you were able to get to your car and get away. Yes, sir. <laughs> now let's turn to count number six. In that count, they claim on March 17th, 1977, in Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed Shirley Byann maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which she did die on March 17, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day? As before, uh, Byann was a, uh, actually on that one, she was completely random. Uh, there was actually someone across from Dillon's was a potential target. It was called Project Green, I think. I had project numbers assigned to it. And that particular day, I uh, drove to Dillon's, parked in the parking lot, watched this particular residence, and then got out of the car and walked over to it. Uh, it's probably the police report, the address. I don't remember the address now. Knocked. Nobody, nobody answered it. So I was all keyed up. So I just uh, started going through the neighborhood. I'd been into the neighborhood before. I kind of knew. A little bit of the layout of the neighborhood. Uh, I've been through the back alleys, knew where some certain people live. Uh, while I uh, was walking down Hydraulic, uh, I met a, a young boy <coughs> and uh, asked him if he ID some pictures. Uh, kind of was a rust, I guess, a roost, as you call it, and uh, kind of feel it out. And I uh, saw where he went, and I went to another address and knocked on the door. Nobody opened the door, so I just noticed where he went and went to that house. and. There. Now, you, you call these projects, uh, were these sexual fantasies also? 
potential hits uh, in my world, that's what I call them. So you went, projects, hits. All right, and, and why did you have these potential hits? Was this to gratify some sexual interest? Or? Yes, sir. I had there, I had a lot of them, so it's just, if one didn't work out, I just moved to another one. All right. So as I'm to understand it, then, on the 17th of March, 1977, you saw this little boy go into a residence, mm -hmm. and you tried another <coughs> residence. No sure. one was there. You tried another residence. No one was there, so right, you went right, to the residence right, with a right, little boy. Yeah. And I watched. I watched where he went. What happened then? Uh, after I tried this once, the residence. Nobody came to the door. I went to this house where he went in, knocked on the door, and told him I was a private detective. Uh, showed him a picture that I had just showed the boy, and asked him if they could ID the picture. And at that time, I, I had the gun here, and I just kind of forced myself in. I just walked in, just opened the door, walked in, and then pulled what? the pistol. What gun? What pistol? Uh, 357 Magnum. So you only had one gun with the pistol? <coughs> yes, sir. Uh -huh. What happened then? Uh, I told uh, Mrs. Espian uh, that uh, I had a problem with uh, sexual fantasies that I was going to tie her up and that uh, I might have to tie the kids up and that she would cooperate with us, cooperate with me at that time. Uh, we went back. Uh, she was extremely nervous. I think she even smoked a cigarette. And uh, we went back to uh, one of the back, back areas of the porch, explained to her that I had done this before. And uh, you know, I think she was, at that point in time, I think she was sick because she had her night robe on. And I think if I remember right, she, was, she had been sick. And I think, I think she came out of the bedroom when I went in the house. So anyway, we went back to the, her bedroom, and I proceeded to tie the kids up. And they started crying and got real upset. So I said, no, this is not going to work. So we moved him to the bathroom. She helped me. And then I tied the door shut. We put some toys and uh, blankets and odds and ends in there for the kids, make them as comfortable as we could. Tied the, uh, we uh, tied one of the bathroom doors shut so they couldn't open it. And we shoved, she went back and helped me shove the bed up against the other bathroom door. And then I proceeded to uh, tie her up. Uh, she got sick, threw up, um, got her a glass of water comforted her a little bit, and then went ahead and tied her up, and then uh, put a bag, a bag over her head and strangled her. All right. Was this a plastic bag also? Mm, yes, sir. I think it was. But All I could right. be wrong on that. Okay, you put but a bag... It, it was something. I'm sure it was a plastic bag, yeah. Now you say you put a bag <laughs> over her head and strangled her. What did you strangle her with? Uh, I actually, I think on that, I had tied, uh, tied her legs to the uh, bedpost and worked up with the rope all the way up, and then what I had left over, I looped over her neck. So you used this uh, rope to strangle her? Yes. I think, I think it's the same one that I tied her body with. What happened then? Well, the, uh, the kids were really banging on the door and hollering and screaming. And, uh, and then the telephone rang. And they had talked about earlier that the neighbor was going to check on them. So I cleaned everything up real quick-like and got out of there, left, and went back into my car. Now, when you say you cleaned everything Well, I mean, put my stuff. I had a briefcase, uh, whatever I had laying around, ropes, tape. Cords, I threw that in there, my, you know, whatever, you know, that I had that I brought in the house. Had you brought that to the uh, Bright residence also? Now, yeah, there is some, there, I, I think it was some basic stuff, but uh, I don't remember bringing total stuff like I did to some of the others. Uh, was this a kit that you had prepared? Yeah, I, yes, I called my hit kit. All right, sir. You left the Vianne residence and had you parked your vehicle near yeah, there? Yeah, still in the same parking lot there at Dillon's, at uh, Hydraulic and 
there, so. Harry? Lincoln. Lincoln. Lincoln and, <coughs> Lincoln and uh, hydraulic. All right, in count seven, it is claimed that on the 8th day of December 1977 in Sedgwick County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed a human being, that being Nancy Fox, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Nancy Fox did die on December 8, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day here in Sedgwick County? Nancy Fox was another one of the projects. Uh, when I was uh, trolling the area, I noticed her go in the house one night. Sometimes I would, and uh, anyway, put her down as a potential victim. Now, um, let me ask you one thing, Mr. Raider. You used that term when you were patrolling the area. What do you mean by that? It's called stalking or trolling. So you were not uh, working in any form or fashion? You well, were just... I don't know. If, if, well, if you read much about serial killers, they go through what they call the different phases. Uh, that's one of the phases they go through as a, as a trolling stage. You're basically, you're looking for a victim at that time. And that, you could be trolling for months or years. But once you lock in on a certain person, then you become stalking. And that might be several of them, but you really home in on that person. Uh, they, they basically become the, that's, that's the victim, or the, that's what you want to do. All right, no, sir. no, I wasn't working, sir. All right. No, this was, no, this was off, off, off my hours. All right. So, you basically uh, identified Nancy Fox as one of your uh, projects. What happened then? Uh, at first, uh, she was uh, spotted, and then I did a little homework. I dropped by once to check the mailbox to see what her name was. Uh, found out where she worked. Uh, stopped by there once. Hillsburg kind of sized her up. I, the more I knew about a person, the, the more I felt comfortable with it. So I did that a couple of times. And then I just selected a night, which was this particular night, to try it, and it worked out. All right. Can you tell me what you did on the night of December 8, 1977? Now about two or three blocks away, I parked my car and walked to that residence. Uh, knocked at the knocked at the door first to make sure to see if anybody was in there, because I knew she arrived home at a particular time from where she worked. Uh, nobody answered the door, so I went around to the back of the house, uh, cut the phone lines. I could tell that there wasn't anybody in the uh, north apartment. Uh, broke in and waited for her to come home in the kitchen. All right. Did she come home? Yes, she did. What happened? Uh, I confronted her, uh, told her there I was a, uh, had a problem, sexual problem, that I would have to tie her up and have sex with her. Uh, she was uh, a little upset. Uh, we talked for a while. Uh, she smoked a cigarette. Uh, while, the, while we smoked a cigarette, I went through her purse, uh, identifying some stuff. And she finally said, uh, well, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. And I said, okay. And she said, can I go to the bathroom? And I said, yes. Uh, she went to the bathroom. And, uh, came, and I told her when she came out to make sure that she was undressed. When she came out, I uh, handcuffed her, and uh, I don't really remember whether sir. You handcuffed her. You had a pair of handcuffs. Yes, sir. Uh -huh. What happened then? Well, anyway, I had her. I handcuffed her. Had her lay on the bed, and then I tied her feet, and uh, then I, I I was also undressed to a certain degree, and then I 
got on top of her and then I reached over, took either either feet were tied or not tied. But anyway, I took I think I had a belt. I took the belt and then strangled her with a belt at that time. All right. All right. After you had strangled her, what happened then? Okay. Uh, after I strangled her with the belt, I took the belt off and retied that with pantyhose, real tight. Uh, removed the handcuffs and uh, tied those with uh, with pantyhose. Can't remember the colors right now. Uh, I think I maybe retied her feet. What they had not already—they were probably already tied. Her feet were, uh, and at that time, uh, uh, masturbated, sir. All right. Had you had sexual relations with her? No, before? no, no. I told her I was, but I did not. So you masturbated, then what did you do? Uh, dressed and then went through the house, uh, took some of her personal items and kind of cleaned the house up, went through it, make checked everything, and then uh, left. All right. He's established it was in Sedgwick County. I don't know exactly what For purposes of... Uh, this. It's in Sedgwick County. Do you remember the address, Mr. Lady? Remember the address? Oh, the box? Nine. Nine thirteen or nine? Nine oh three? No, I, I sure don't. I know I was on Persian. South oh. Persian. That's all. I don't. You're which it was a nine. It was nine something, sir. But I don't know the other digits. The address, as I said, is really not important as long as you remember it happened here in Wichita, Sudbury County. Yes, sir. All right, sir, let's turn to count eight. In count eight, it is claimed that on or about the 27th day of April 1985 to the 28th day of April 1985 in Sudbury County, Kansas, it is claimed that you unlawfully killed a human being, Marine Hedge, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which Marine Hedge did die on April 27, 1985. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Well, actually, uh, kind of like the others, uh, she was chosen. Uh, I went through the different phases, uh, stalking phase, and since she lived down the street from me, I could watch the coming and going quite easily. Uh, on that particular date, I. Uh, had a, uh, a other commitment. I came back from that commitment, parked my car over at uh, Woodlawn and 21st Street uh, at Bowling Alley there at that time. Uh, before that, I dressed until I had some other clothes on. I changed clothes. I went to the bowling alley, uh, went in there, uh, the pretense of bowling, called a taxi, had a taxi take me out to Park City. Uh, I had my kit with me as a bowling bag. All right, that was Park City in Sedgwick County, yes, Kansas? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. All right, you had the taxi take you to Park City. What happened there? Uh, there I asked, I, I uh, pretended that I was a little uh, drunk. I just took I just took some beer and forced it around my mouth, and the guy could probably smell the alcohol on me. I asked, told him to let me out so I could get some fresh air, and I walked from where the taxi let me off over to her house. All right, where does she live? Uh, 62, <laughs> 42. 54? 6254? 6254. North Independence. Alright, when you walked over there, what happened next? Well, as before, I was going to have uh, sexual fantasy, so I brought my hit kit uh, and uh, 
lo and behold, her car was there. I thought, gee, she's not supposed to be home. So I very carefully snuck into the house, kind of like a cat burglar. And after checking the house, she wasn't there. So about that time, the doors rattled. So I went, went back to one of the bedrooms and hid back there in one of the bedrooms. Uh, she came in with a male visitor. They were there for maybe an hour or so. Uh, he left. I waited till wee hours in the morning uh, and then proceeded to uh, sneak into her bedroom and uh, flip the lights on what looked like, or I think the bathroom lights. I just I didn't want to flip her lights on and, and she screamed and I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually. All right. Now, were you wearing any kind of disguise or mask at this time? No, no. You indicated this woman lived down the street from you. Did she know you? Uh, casually, we'd uh, walk by and wave. Uh, she she liked to work in her yard as well as I like to work. It's just a neighborly type thing. It wasn't anything personal. I mean, just a neighbor. All right, so she was in her bed when you turned on the lights in the bathroom? Yeah, the bathroom, yeah, just to, so I could get some light in there. All right, what did you do then? Oh, I manually strangled her when she started to scream. So you but, used your hands? Yes, sir. And you strangled her? Did she die? Yes. All right, what did you do then? Uh, after that, uh, since I was in the uh, sexual fantasy, I uh, went ahead and uh, stripped her and uh, probably went ahead and uh, I'm not sure if I tied her up at that point in time, but anyway, uh, she was nude and I put her on a blanket, uh, went through her purse, some personal items in the house, uh, figured out how I was going to get her out of there, uh, eventually uh, moved her to the trunk of the car, <sighs> took the car over to uh, Christ Lutheran Church. Uh, this is with the older church, and uh, I took some pictures of her. All right, you took some photographs of her. What kind of camera did you use? Uh, poor Lord. Did you keep those photographs? Yes, the police probably had them. All right, All right. what happened then? Uh, that was it. I that went, uh, took, uh, she went through, I tied it, she was already dead, so I took uh, pictures of her in different forms of bondage, and that's probably what got me in trouble was the bondage thing. So anyway, that's the, probably the, the main thing. But anyway, after that, I uh, moved her back out to the car, and then uh, we went east on 53rd. All right, what occurred then? Sir? What happened then? Oh, uh, trying to find a place to hide her, hide the body. Did you find a place? Yes. Yes, I did. Where? Uh, couldn't tell you without looking at a map, but it was on 53rd, Queen uh, Greenwich, maybe. Maybe, what's what's the other one, Queen Greenwich? Web. I think between Wed and Webb and Greenwich, I found a, a ditch, a low place on the north side of the road and hit her there. All right, you say you hit her there? Well, there were, some, there were some trees, some brush, and I laid that over the top of her body. All right, so you removed the body from the car, put her in the ditch, and then laid some some brush over the body. Yes, sir. All right. Sir, in count nine, it is claimed on or about the 16th day of September 1986 in Sedgwick County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed a human being, Vicki Wegerly, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Vicki Wegerly did die on September 16, 1986. Can you tell me what you did here in Sedgwick County on that day that makes you believe you are guilty? Yes. Uh, again, Vicki was, was another potential victim. I went through those different phases, uh, locked in on her, as I would call it, 
and uh, decided that I would try that date. I used a ruse as a uh, telephone repairman to get in their house. Uh, drove there in my own personal car uh, around lunchtime, during lunch hour, or approximately that time. It was earlier in the morning than that. And, uh, my, I actually went somewhere else and changed uh, changed my clothes, what I, what I call my uh, hit clothes. And, hit uh, clothes? Hit clothes. Uh, basically different, you know, things that I'd need to get rid of later. Not, not the same kind of clothes that I had on. I, I don't know what other better word to use it. Uh, crime clothes or hit clothes. I just call them hit clothes. Uh, anyway, I walked from my car as a telephone uh, repairman. As I walked there, I donned the telephone helmet. I had a briefcase. Went to one other address just to kind of size up the house. I'd walked by it a couple times, but I wanted to check it a little bit more. Uh, as I approached it, I could hear a piano sound. And uh, went to this other door, knocked on them, and told them I was, that we were recently working on telephone repairs in the area. And, uh, and went to her went to her, and knocked on the door and asked her if I could come check her telephone lines inside. Did she allow you in? Yes, she did. What happened then? I uh, went over and uh, found out where the telephone was, uh, simulated that I was checking the uh, telephone. I had a make-believe instrument, and uh, after she was looking away, I, I drew a pistol at her and asked her if she'd go back to the bedroom with me. Was this the same 357 Magnum you'd used? No, this, this was a different one. Different pistol. Are you asked her to go back to the bedroom with you after drawing a pistol on her? Yes, sir. What happened then? Uh, I told her, we went back to the bedroom, I told her I was going to have to tie her up. She was very upset, and I think we I used some material that was in, uh, and that, that's another thing, I'm not sure, but I, I think I used the material that they had in their bedroom, and after I tied her hands, uh, she broke that and we started fighting, and we fought quite a bit back and forth. All right, she was physically fighting you? Oh, yeah, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. What happened then? Uh, finally got the hand on her and got a, a, a nylon sock and started strangling her. Wrap the stocking around her neck. Yes. What happened then? Uh, I finally gained the uh, gained on her and, and, and put her down, and I thought she was dead, but apparently she wasn't. But uh, after after she was down and not moving anymore, I, I rearranged her clothes a little bit and took some quick photos. I think three of them, if I remember. And then uh, after that, I there was a lot of commotion. Uh, she had mentioned something about her husband coming home, uh, so I got out there pretty quick. The dogs were raising a lot of cane in the back. Uh, the doors and the windows were all open to the house. A lot of noise when we were fighting. So I left pretty quickly after that. Put everything in the briefcase and had her, I'd already gone through her uh, purse and got the keys to the car and used her car for my getaway car. All right, now you indicate that you thought that she was dead. Did you discover later that she was not dead? Yes, I guess the paramedics uh, arrived and they tried to attempt to re relieve her, or revive her, and that, that failed. I don't know if she died there or on the way to the hospital or at the hospital. I don't recollect. But you later found out that she did die as a result of your strangulation. Yes. Now, sir, let's turn to count 10. In that count, it's claimed that on or about the 18th day of January 1991 to the 19th day of January 1991 in the county of Sedgwick, state of Kansas, that you did then and there unlawfully kill a human being, that being Dolores E. Davis maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation inflicting injuries from which the said Dolores E. Davis did die on January 19, 1991. 
Mr. Rader, please tell me what you did here in Sedgwick County, Kansas, on that day that makes you believe you're guilty. You know, that particular day, I had some commitments. I left those, uh, went to one place, changed my clothes, went to another place, uh, parked my car, finally made arrangements on my hit kit, my clothes, and then walked to that residence. Uh, after spending some time at that residence, uh, it was very cold at night, uh, had reservations about going in. They, I had cased the place before, and I really couldn't figure out how to get in, and she was in the house, so I finally just uh, selected a, a, a concrete block and threw it through the plate glass window on the east and came on in. All right, where is this residence located? It's on Hillside, but I couldn't give you address. I know it's probably 61, probably 62-something. Oh, 62-something. North or south? North. North Hillside. All right, so you used a concrete block to break the window? Mm-hmm, plate glass window, patio door. What happened then? Uh, noise. I just went in. Uh, she came out of the bedroom and thought that a car had hit her house. And I told her that I was, uh, I used the, the roofs of uh, being wanted. Uh, I was on the run. I needed food, car, warmth, warm up. And, uh, and I asked her, I handcuffed her and uh, kind of talked to her, told her that I would like to get some food, get her keys, her car, and kind of rest assured, you know, walk, talk with her a little bit calmed her down a little bit, and, uh, and then eventually I checked, uh, I think she was still handcuffed, I uh, went back and checked out where the car was, uh, simulated getting some food, odds and ends in the house, that I like I was leaving, and then went back and uh, removed her handcuffs, and, uh, and then tied her up, and then, and then eventually strangled her. Or you say eventually strangled her? Well, after I tied her up. I went through some things in the room there and then, and then strangled her. You say you went through, were you looking for something? Mm -hmm. Well, some personal items, yes. I took some personal items from there. Did you take personal items in every one of these incidents? Uh, I did on the hedge. Uh, I don't remember anything of uh, Vicky's place. We have Charles, we got the watch and the radio. I don't think I did any brights. Uh, Vians, no, I don't think so. Fox, yes, I took some things from Fox. It was hit and miss. All right, but probably, probably if, it, if, it was, if it was a control situation where I had more time, <laughs> I took something. But if it, if it was a confusion and other things, I didn't, as I was trying to get out of there. All right. So in regard to the Davis matter, you went around the room, took a few personal things. What did you do then? Uh, strangled her. What did you strangle her with? Pantyhose. All right. What happened? Uh, kind of like uh, Mrs. Hedge, uh, I already figured out my, I had a you know, plan on leaving and uh, put her in a blanket and drug her to the car and put her in the trunk of the car. So you were able to strangle her to death with these pantyhose? Yes, sir. All right, you put her in your car? In her car. In car. Her, her car. Trunk, uh -huh. trunk. The trunk of her car. Uh -huh. What happened then? Uh, I really had a commitment I needed to go to, so I moved her to one spot, took her out of her car, this gets complicated, then the stuff I had, clothes, gun, whatever, I took that to another spot in her car, dumped that off, okay, then took her car back to her house, uh, left that, let me think now, okay, in the interim, 
took her car back to her house. In the interim, I realized that I had lost one of my guns. I dropped it somewhere. So I was trying to figure out where my gun was. So I went back in the house, realized I had dropped it when I went in the, when I broke the plate glass window. It dropped and fell on the floor right there, and I found it right there. So that solved that problem. Anyway, I went back out, uh, threw the keys, uh, checked the car real quick, quick like, uh, and threw the keys up on top of the roof of her house, walked from her car back to my car, took my car, drove it back, and I either dropped more stuff off or I picked her up and put them in my car. And then I drove up uh, northeast of uh, Sedgwick County and dropped her off underneath the bridge. So all of these incidents, these 10 counts, occurred because you wanted to satisfy a sexual fantasy. Is that correct? Yes. Does any party desire any further uh, matters to be put on the record at this time? No, Your Honor. All right. You may be seated, Mr. Reagan. Oh. I will find that you, Dennis L. Rader, have knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived your constitutional rights and entered your pleas of guilty. I will find that you understand the nature of the charges and the consequences of your pleas. Based upon your statements to the court, I will find there are factual bases for each of these pleas of guilty. I will accept these pleas of guilty and adjudge you, Dennis L. Rader, guilty of murder in the first degree in count one, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count two, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count three, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count four, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count five, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count six, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count seven, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count eight, a class A felony. Murder in the first degree in count nine, a class A felony. And murder in the first degree in count ten, a class A felony. mystery remained. Why had there been such long gaps between the murders? Basically, he was raising his children. And once his children were born, it limited the time that he could be away from home. And he did not want his wife to become suspicious. When he was unable to kill, Raider satisfied his urges by practicing on himself. Ties himself up and takes photographs. That's what's important, is the bondage and the imagery. He had a fantasy that all of the victims that died would serve him in the afterlife. Those who knew Raider couldn't believe what they were hearing. When he went on to talk about the details and how he, uh, you know, smothered the bags over those kids' head and, um, I don't know, it's just uh, it's very bizarre. Raider escaped execution only because his murders were committed before Kansas voted to restore the death penalty. I hate him. Uh, the greatest satisfaction I have in my life is the thought of him burning in hell. When you think about what that cockroach did to so many lives, can you ever exact enough punishment, enough pain to make up for that? 
His sentence was the toughest the judge could impose. Consecutive life sentences, totaling 175 years. There will be people who will study Dennis Rader, I am sure, and try to figure out what makes him tick. I don't really care what makes Dennis Rader tick. The only thing that I'm concerned about is that Dennis Rader will no longer hurt anyone else. And I will sleep very nicely just knowing that he's where he belongs.